We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Hey, welcome back to another edition of the Finding Freedom Rewind. Got a great episode that I dug up for you. Really excited for you guys to hear this. Um, Some of you might have heard it before, but for those of you who haven't, I interviewed four different people sitting on death row. Thanks to Tessie Castillo, author of The Crimson Letters. She uh, set these interviews up with me. And today's interview is with Lau May. It originally aired back in 2020. And you can tell from the interview when you're listening that we're obviously talking on a prison phone and there's different times in the conversation. I think I could only talk in 15-minute increments and the call would end and then he would have to call back in. So we could do a total of 30 minutes. But there's times where it says 30 seconds and your call is going to end in 15 seconds, all of this stuff. So that stuff is all in there really gives you the the sense of, you know, you really feel that you're talking to um, someone who is in prison. But I'll tell you what, this guy is going to blow your mind. Um, someone who is sitting on a death row, uh, who can have the positive outlook and have really the life systems in place to make a positive impact in the world. It is inspiring and hopefully uh, you will find some takeaways from it um, that will help you in your daily life. I'll kind of leave it at that. We jump right into it in the interview. Um, I cut out the interview I did with Tessie from the archived episode, and I'm going to play that one later because I, I did a couple interviews with her. I'm going to piece them all together in one episode, and I'll be playing that one um, in a couple weeks, probably in its entirety. So here is the episode with death row inmate Lyle May. How's it going, Lyle? How's it going? Okay, so you guys just heard from Tessie Castillo. I want to thank her again uh, for coming on the show and the work she's done with uh, with the Crimson Letters and really pulling all of this together, facilitating this interview today. Uh, she has helped me to bring Lyle May on the show. Uh, Lyle was convicted of double homicide in 1999 at the age of 19. He's currently on death row in North Carolina. While he's been incarcerated, he's managed to earn his GED, his associate's degree. He's also published two books and is working on a third. He's he's written articles for The Marshall Project, The J Journal, Prison Writers, and maintains a blog at beyondsteeldoors.com. Lyle, welcome to Felony Friday. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. And... I started off with this question last time um, with your co-author, and I'm going to ask you this this same question first. When you uh, you know went through your trial and you first heard your sentence uh, that you were sentenced to uh, death row to a death sentence, um, what was that initial reaction like for you? What 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 was that like uh, emotionally to to hear that read? Well, I was still in a kind of a, a state of shock uh, from the conviction, the guilt-innocence phase, and by the time that uh, 
they'd actually gone through uh, sentencing and, and read the verdict. It was just one of shock. There was, uh, you know, you, you often hear uh, or see uh, on TV the uh, reporting about people who go through these trials, and the comments are always something along the lines, oh, he looks stone-faced or he's not showing any emotion. Well, it's generally because those people are in shock. Uh, it's not an ordinary situation, and it's hard to process not only all the information that goes on at trial and the different uh, testimony and the arguments and trying to keep up with all of that, but then, you know, to process this idea that you are being ripped away from your loved ones and uh, put in prison, not just in prison, but in prison to die, uh, it, it's it's difficult to get over. It's not the kind of thing that you just suddenly understand. It takes years to really process that capital trial. And I, I did that for me. Uh, so in, in that particular moment, uh, as the sentence was read, I, I was in, in a state of shock. Yeah, that's, that's, that makes sense. I mean, I, and it, you know, that's a good point you bring up. People see the, see these faces and you make assumptions on, you know, how are they not reacting? But uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that makes total sense that you'll be in complete shock at that point in time. So you've been, um, you've been on death row for twenty years now, I, I guess. How over that like, t- twenty-one? Sorry. Um, how has your attitude uh, evolved over that time? You said it took you a couple, a couple years. Um, that, what's that journey been like for you? It's been long, uh, and my attitudes evolved significantly, and I, I don't think I can quite uh, express how much it's changed. Uh, when I first fell uh, and went through that process of, of trying to understand how I'd gotten here and what that exactly means, uh, it didn't suddenly dawn on me like, oh, gee, I, I need to... Uh, changed my ways you know that was certainly a uh, part of the, the process but at the same time it's like you know figuring out uh like a shattered piece a shattered glass you know you, you have to kind of examine each piece and, and figure out where it fits with the other and kind of put it back together to get an idea of what being made whole looks like and as you're doing that you're kind of discovering what your failings are and, and what your strengths are too. Uh, and when you do that, you, you kind of have to make a choice. You, you make a choice to say, okay, well, just because I've been broken doesn't mean I can't be put back together. And when you make that decision, uh, you have to, to recognize that, the responsibility, or I should say the accountability for being made whole, for uh, evolving and changing, lies with, with you, with, with, uh, or I should say with me, uh, in terms of becoming a better person, in terms of educating myself, in terms of becoming spiritually awakened, in terms of understanding the criminal legal process and as you go along and and time passes and you 
uh, slowly put the pieces back together, you you discover a lot of things. Uh, for me, it was that I enjoy writing. I find that writing is a way of seeing. And as I grow better at it, it becomes an accurate way of seeing, not just my life, but the lives of others around me and of this place that I'm in. And as I, I see the different problems that are within this system, that are within the lives of those around me, that are within my own life, uh, I look for solutions because I, I'm... Once, once you reach a point where you, you've educated yourself and you you discover this way of seeing, uh, you don't just want to leave things broken. You, you want to try to put them back together. You want to fix them. You want to find solutions for uh, these these various issues that you see and, and you go at them. And that's kind of how I've developed uh, my time and, and my attitude toward that time. Yeah, I've, I've read some of your work, and uh, you know, I've read your writing, and, and it's excellent. And to talk about in the one article I read, how you know, I think you talked about your, I think you said you dropped out of high school when you were a sophomore, and you really never even, you know, got into reading and, and writing back then. Um, I wanted to ask you, what were some of the the books or, or some of the authors that? You know that either are your favorite authors or kind of motivated and uh, and pulled you towards you know learning how to, f- f- farthering your uh, your own writing style. The first book that I can say honestly jumped out at me early on in my incarceration was Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning, and it has been uh, on multiple occasions instrumental in uh, evolving my thinking and my approach to incarceration. Um, Frankel uh, essentially teaches that suffering is universal, and just as universal is our ability to find meaning in that suffering and to make it uh, worthwhile. I say that in in the sense that, again, it goes back to this idea of holding yourself accountable every day for uh, your time on this earth and making that time meaningful and bringing purpose to it. And that's kind of the, the core lesson that I took away from Frankel, Frankel early on in my life. I didn't mm-hmm. totally, excuse me, early on in my incarceration, didn't totally uh, grasp it at the beginning. It's something I had to kind of uh, grow into. It's like wearing a pair of pants that are just a little bit too big for you right then and there, but you, you grow into them. You, you roll the, the legs a little bit, and you, and you make the best of it. Um, but Man's Search for Meaning was, was certainly uh, a key book early on. I'll have to check that out. I, I have not read that. Um, I wanted to ask you be- about your your own writings, uh, your, your own books. So you've written two books. Could you tell us a little bit about those books and uh, the story behind them? Well, the first book... Waiting for the Last Train was kind of my first real foray into essay writing and memoir writing. I wrote it kind of at the suggestion of my mom. She wanted me to just sit down and write my story in the way that I understood it. And 
I did that. I, you know, did my best to do that. And it was kind of a, more of an overview than a, a really deeply detailed story. Uh, it carried me through some of the more vivid memories of my childhood and not necessarily the best ones. So it's kind of imbalanced in that way. And it seems uh, very negative. Uh, and that was something that was brought to my attention early uh, when both of my parents read it. Uh, but it was also, uh, again, I mentioned writing as a way of seeing. It was also helpful and, and cathartic in, in many ways. Uh, and it awakened in me a desire to continue writing, to to really dig into the hard work of understanding myself, my past, my present, and my future. Yeah, writing writing can be powerful, and, and getting those words on, on paper um, – that's, that's not surprising that that it helped you through this difficult time. Um, I did want to talk to you, and we'll come back. I have some more questions um, about your your time in prison, but I want to shift for a minute here and talk a little bit about just the criminal justice system. I, I know that you've written a lot about criminal justice reforms, so could, could you share with us some of the reforms that um, you are most passionate about, that you have written about or advocated for the most? Sure. Uh, I'll share a story with you. Uh, recently, the North Carolina Racial Justice Task Force that was convened by uh, the State Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls and Attorney General Josh Stein uh, ha- held a public meeting in which they were uh, soliciting public comment about ways to address racial injustice and the uh, criminal injustice system. Uh, I took an opportunity to submit four proposals to that task force, and they did, in, in fact, receive them. Um, and those four proposals are these. Uh, the first was to commission an ombuds office that would oversee conditions of confinement in North Carolina prisons and jails, kind of act as an intermediary between the prison population and prison officials. Uh, the second proposal was to establish a rehabilitative mandate. You have 60 seconds remaining. In every North Carolina prison, and that's namely to uh, make sure that mental health, vocation, and higher education programs are implemented in every facility. The third was to create a second look mechanism that grants the North Carolina Parole Commission and post-release supervision the authority to review any kind of life sentence for people who have served a minimum of 25 years. And the fourth was simply to... You have 30 seconds remaining. ...to abolish the death penalty. And those proposals have been received, and and they're currently being reviewed. And hopefully uh, in December, when they submit the report to the governor, they'll be included. Is is it right that in North Carolina there is no parole? Uh. Yes and no, and I'll explain that on the second call. Okay. Hey, we're going to take a real quick commercial break here, and I got a question for you. Actually, two questions. Number one, do you like fresh roasted coffee? Number two, do you hate censorship? If you answered yes to both of those questions, then you should be drinking Run Your Mouth Coffee. Run Your Mouth Coffee is a coffee brand that I co-founded with my friend Ben Panji 
where we deliver fresh roasted coffee to your doorstep, and we are staunch advocates for free speech, and we are against censorship. We are against big tech censorship. So please support Run Your Mouth Coffee, support like-minded freedom lovers like myself and Ben, and we're going to give you a, a discount for doing it too. It's beautiful, beautiful thing. Go to rymcoffee.com, pick out your favorite type of fresh roasted coffee beans, and uh, put in promo code FREEDOM for 10% off, and we're going to give you free shipping, and that coffee will be delivered directly to your door. The beans are roasted immediately after your order, so they are shipped to you and delivered to your doorstep at their peak freshness. This coffee is delicious, and I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Go to rymcoffee.com and use promo code FREEDOM for 10% off and free shipping. Okay, Lyle. Yeah, back to uh, back to that question uh, I asked you about North Carolina, the, the situation with uh, with parole there. Right. So in October of 1994, the North Carolina Sentencing Commission changed the law and abolished parole for crimes committed after October of 1994. For crimes that had been committed before that date, there is still parole. Uh, An example of this I I wrote of in Paroling Michael Pence, an article that was published by Scalawag Magazine, and it explained how my friend uh, Michael had been convicted of a double homicide in 1978. The laws back then were different. First degree murder was a parole eligible sentence after, uh, with a life when you've done a minimum of 20 years on a life sentence. Well, he had been incarcerated for nearly 41 years, I think, before earning parole earlier this year. And that is just one example of people who have been sentenced for crimes that were committed before October 1994. For people who have been convicted of crimes that occurred after October of 1994, there is no parole. Uh, and that's largely put because uh, parole was abolished uh, by the Parole Commission, and they implemented what's called the Structured Sentencing Act, which creates mandatory minimums and uh, only a little bit of time off of a sentence uh, for good behavior, or what's called uh a minimum, mandatory minimum. And that's it. That's, you know, that's really the only uh, difference. Yeah, that, that jumped out to me. And I forget which of your writings I was reading. I, I did not know that about the North Carolina parole situation. Um, I'm curious, what's the status of, of, of your case? Do you have appeals that are left? Or what's your what would be your path towards... Um, you know, eventually getting it, getting released or getting, I guess, paroled yourself. The only thing that I can say, and I have a very mean lawyer who will uh, jump on me if I say otherwise, is that I am contesting my conviction and sentence and I am still currently under appeal and cannot say anything else. Gotcha. That makes sense. I won't ask you any more questions about that. Um, I did want to come back to, your time uh, that you've been serving your prison for the past 21 plus years. Um, If you could take us through what a normal day in prison is is like for you. For me, a normal day in prison is full of reading and writing and 
finding ways to stay focused on a number of tasks that I give myself. And I, I do my best to give myself an overwhelming amount of tasks so that I never lack for something to do. Uh, it helps me stay busy and it's good to be as busy as, you know, really needing extra hours in a day, even in prison. Uh, and I, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but that's the kind of stuff that I, I like to do, whether it's writing articles for Scalawag magazine, whether it's uh, creating new chapters for uh, the book I'm working on, Class of One, The Transformative Journey of Higher Education in Prison, or completing my uh, college courses or applying for new college courses. You know, there is always something to do, something to schedule, uh, somebody I need to talk with, a professor I need to consult with. Uh, and I prefer my time that way. I, I couldn't, I think I would probably lose my mind if I, I didn't have those sorts of things to do. And there have been plenty of people in prison and that are in prison now losing their minds because there is nothing to do and they don't have access to that higher education and kind of the, the programs that I've uh, established for myself over these years. That's, that's really interesting. I, I think that's, that's good advice. You know, when you talk about giving yourself an overwhelming amount of things to do, uh, maybe that's not good advice for everyone. Maybe a lot of people would get, would get overwhelmed, but that's something that I try to do myself personally. Um, the problem is sometimes, you know, you, you'll lose track of something or, you know, something will fall through the cracks and you'll, you'll, you'll kind of beat yourself up over it, at, you know, after it, uh, you know, if you set a deadline for yourself, you don't meet it. So I'm curious, how do you keep yourself on tracks? How do you prioritize what you want to work on that day? That's actually a, a really good question because I'm struggling with that now. Uh, I have, I guess you'd say, a vision board, which is it's you know kind of a, a finessed version of a dry erase board. It's a piece of plastic trash bag I tape to my wall that I use uh, washable markers on, and I track all of my uh, lessons for the courses I'm enrolled in. I track the chapters that I'm writing for my book. I track track. Uh, speaking engagements like this one for Lines of Liberty uh, and the two that I have coming up for Columbia University. I make sure that all of my dates are accurate and times are written down and I stay as organized as I possibly can. And even then, I still manage to fall behind sometimes because, you know, I just need a breathing room. Uh, and and when those times occur, I, I'm working on being uh, more gentle with myself, but that's a work in progress. That's that's amazing. So you're, you're keeping track of your, your tasks on a, you said, a, a trash bag that you have taped up to the wall. Uh, that takes away any excuses that anyone in the outside world makes for themselves for, for keeping track of things and, and losing track of things. Um, that's, that, that's awesome to hear. So I, I did want to come back again to reform for, for a minute here, or however long it takes. And Kind of get a little more specific. I, I know you you read through your uh, your proposals there, which was great. But if you could kind of imagine a uh, you know a world where you're you're put in charge of the prison system, uh, what reforms would you put in place with regard specifically to educational programs um, and or you know with regards to uh, personal development programs? I think there is uh, a misunderstanding that 
by establishing a rehabilitative mandate, it necessarily costs money. That's not always the case, or at least it's only part of the case. Immediately, the thing that could change overnight that would be absolutely free is the way prison officers are trained to treat people in prison. They too often look at them like property. And when you have that mindset, when you don't see the people who are under your charge as in need of rehabilitation, then you're not going to treat them like they need rehabilitation. And that becomes a problem because then you generate animosity and uh, you see a lot of what you often hear about in the news. And just simply by training prison officers to more ably respond to their charges, you know, as human beings, it would change significantly and, and go a long way toward helping to uh, establish a rehabilitative ideal. And then, then you have to fund it. You have to fund uh, higher education. You have to fund vocation. And you have to make it a mandatory requirement. This is not something that can be optional. And, you know, I, I say that, but sometimes there, there has to be forced use. And in this instance, people who are in prison need to be habilitated before they can be rehabilitated. And that habilitation comes through education. So at, at what point in your own journey, just to get a little bit more specific, I know we talked about your, your evolution, but can you point to like a specific moment in time where your attitude changed, where something clicked for you and, and you decided to, you wanted to change your course and start reading more, start writing? It was maybe around 2007 that I had taken uh, about the fifth course uh, from UNC Chapel Hill, and I I clung to the idea that this is something that you know saved me from ordinary prison life. It opened my mind in ways that I, I never even considered before. It's hard to think, it's hard to imagine and dream if you don't have the fuel to do so. Uh, and higher education provided that for me. And once it did, I, I couldn't ever see leaving it. I could never see not having it. And once that had clicked over my mind and, and I went to my sponsor, I'm like, hey, look, I'm not going to stop doing this. Would you be willing to let me switch universities and pursue a degree program? I, you know, I would like it to to mean something beyond me just doing courses and, and learning for the intrinsic value, you know, and and he agreed. And I switched to Ohio University and, and haven't looked back. Uh, that, I believe, is the moment at which I, I left prison life behind, that I left any old ideas that I, I might have clung to that I, I couldn't do it or that I was incapable or incompetent. Uh, because the, there was proof otherwise. And the grades I was earning, the comments from professors I was receiving, and that was the proof. Something you said there just jumped out to me, and if you could elaborate on it, you said you left prison life behind. What does that, what does that mean for you? Prison is a place where choice still occurs on a daily basis. There are 
a lot of things that you can do that can get you in trouble. Uh, it's really easy to uh, step outside of the rules because there are so many. Um, but if you have kind of your own path, if you have your own sense of purpose, then those things no longer matter. You no longer want, you're no longer interested in the the day-to-day gossip, the, uh, you know, using things to take your, using substances to uh, take your mind away from, you know, your responsibilities. There is, I guess, uh, more intent in, in your daily living uh, by removing yourself from prison, from that, the idea of, you know, what it means to become institutionalized. And you begin to think critically. And I, I think that more than anything else is what has separated me from a, a lot of people in here is that ability to think critically. And I, I wish more than, more than a lot of things that I, I could extend that to other people to show them how to think critically. And if I could, I would certainly teach them. Yeah, that's, that's profound. If, if that's something that could somehow be, be bottled up, I, I, I think that would solve a lot of problems, not only in prisons, but, uh, but around the world, because I think there's a lack, a lack of critical thinking. Um, we have an, an yeah. epidemic uh, throughout this world. I, I did want to ask you um, a little, maybe a more deeper question. So I, I know you've put a lot of time in your writing. You've written two books. You, you've uh, you know you've been a co-author with uh, Crimson Letters. You're working on another book. Um, you're doing the speaking engagements, and you've just talked about you know leaving prison life behind and uh, you know sort of you know having the influence beyond the prison walls. How do you want to be remembered for your time on Earth? Um, you know when people look back on, on on your life, what do you want them to say about you? that I lived life the second time as I should have the first. What do you mean by that? That once I discovered uh, the importance of education, once I was granted that first opportunity, that I never let it an opportunity pass me by again, that I, from then on, did the absolute best I could every time. That in doing... You had 60 seconds remaining. I was able to prove my potential as a human being and continue striving. Well, that is, that is powerful stuff, Lyle. And uh, we have you know, just a couple seconds left here. Um, do you have any, any parting words, any advice, anything you'd like to say uh, to my audience before, before uh, I let you go? Yes. Uh, I, thank you very much for having me. And I would like people to remember who listen to this or who you have 30 seconds remaining about people in prison, that they're human beings first, that prisons are a responsibility of the public, and just because you don't see us does not mean that that responsibility goes away. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Lyle, and I appreciate uh, everything you're doing, appreciate your attitude, and appreciate your contribution here to the criminal justice reform movement. Well, thank you, and I appreciate it. Okay, well, that is a wrap for the Finding Freedom Rewind. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed listening to it again. Please get out there, 
Share it with your network. Please subscribe if you haven't to the Finding Freedom show. And please leave us a you know, five-star rating and, and a nice review and some feedback as well. As always, appreciated letting me know uh, either what episodes you'd like to hear in the future or which episodes you'd like to hear featured from the past on the Finding Freedom Rewind. And in the meantime, other ways you can support myself and the Lions of Liberty, of course, is by going to rymcoffee.com, run your mouth coffee, buying a bag of coffee, and entering code FREEDOM for 10% off. You can also support us directly by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can go to patreon.com slash Liberty. You can go to lionsofliberty.locals.com and check out all the offerings there and pick out a level to support us, get all the crazy bonus content we do and discounts on our merchandise and a bunch of other stuff. So check it all out. And with that, guys, I want to thank you once again. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>